This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hi, everybody. It's Bean. And Abdullah. And no, you don't have to adjust your podcast receivers. It's our Freaky High Day episode. So normally on this show, I do the research and tell the story, but this time we're switching it up, and my man has got a story to tell me. Yep, that's right. Once in a while, we like to do a little switcheroo. Uh, We did an episode about the decriminalization of weed in Philadelphia. That was the last one uh, that I told to Bean. And I've got a really great story for you today that I'm very excited about. All right. Well, I'm settling in. I got a J ready to spark up. What, what do you got for me today? All right. So today's story is about a great moment in weed history that has recurred every year for thousands of years. Whoa. Oh, man. I'm, the mind reels. Uh, I got to <laughs> say, I'm, I'm excited about anything that touches out into the ancient world because I feel like that's a big gap in my own personal weed knowledge. And then something that's stuck every year. Mm-hmm. We already did a 420 episode. And that's, yeah. you know, of course, 420 comes every year, but I don't think thousands of years ago. So I don't know, man. I don't know. Just I'm going to I'm going to spark this J up. Yep. And you know what? Uh, I've got a J here as well for you at home. If you want to take a second, press pause, roll up a J, heat up your nail, spark up whatever it is you want to spark up, because I think we might be ready for another great moment in weed history. Smoke media. (sighs) Throughout history, cannabis has been at the origin of so many human institutions, agriculture, medicine, trade. And today, we'll learn about how it's an integral element in the world's oldest religion that's still practiced today. Any guesses? Oldest religion? Is is it Hinduism? That's right. Ah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, what do you know about Hinduism and cannabis? Oh, man, less than I should. Uh, (laughs) I know that I believe the uh, deity Shiva is is pretty closely related to cannabis in some ways. Yes. And I know there uh, are they uh, sadhus. Yes. And and ascetics. Yeah. Yes. And that is sadly, in a way for me and my and my cultural blindness about where it ends. Excitingly. For the two of us. Yes, happily. I think, I think I'm going to learn very much. So, yes, you actually do know some things about Hinduism and cannabis. Being, I figured you would as a cannabis, as an informed cannabis person. And, yes, we'll, we're definitely going to be talking about Shiva today. And we're going to be talking about sadhus today, the ascetics that forego all worldly possessions. And they walk around naked and they smoke tons of weed. And I've actually hung out with those guys, which I'll tell you about a little bit later. Oh, man, that's fantastic. And it's, yeah, this is just a great way to just remind ourselves how big weed culture is, how old weed culture is. And 
how long a tradition we we are all in every time we get blazed. Yes, it's very true. So today we're going to talk about cannabis in Hindu mythology, the ancient preparations of weed that have persisted in India for millennia, and most importantly, about a holiday during which the prohibition of cannabis is lifted for a day, and people of all backgrounds, genders, and ages collectively get super-duper high in devotion to the god Shiva. This is the story of Mahashivaratri. Today's story is not so much a chronological story in many ways. I mean, there's definitely parts of it that are, but we're going to be talking about a bunch of different aspects of Hinduism and cannabis centered around this one annual holiday. Oh, take me there, man. I'm, yeah. I'm all in. Awesome. All right, let's do it. So before we get all the way in, I'm going to give you a little disclaimer. All right. Hinduism is a very old religion rooted in myriad texts practiced in different ways by different groups who interpret everything differently. There are multiple iterations of many of the stories that we're going to be talking about today. Everything we're discussing was vetted through reputable and quasi-reputable internet resources because if you start Googling around about Hindu mythology, I mean, you're not exactly going to find library LexisNexis articles about everything. It's kind of like a pretty wild rabbit hole out there. But everything was vetted by me and our researcher, Haley, who did a really fantastic job helping me out with this. But neither of us is Hindu and neither of us is a Hindu scholar. So take that for what it is. I'm sure there's Hindu people who will hear this and be like, oh, I think I have a different interpretation or I follow a different story. But these are all out there. These are all believed by groups of Hindus in the world. I'm co-signing the disclaimer. All right. So to start off, let's introduce Shiva, the god that you just mentioned a second ago. This is the god that's at the center of the festival of Maha Shivaratri. All right. So Shiva is one of three major gods in Hinduism. There's Brahma, the creator of all the things in the universe, but not necessarily the universe itself. There is Vishnu, the preserver and protector of the universe, who maintains its functioning and upkeep. And then there's Shiva, the destroyer of the universe, storied to be a great lover of cannabis. Now, you might be thinking, destroyer of the universe seems like a kind of destructive job for a cannabis-loving <laughs> god, right? But Shiva's role is part of the balanced system that we're talking about. While he does destroy many things, or everything in a literal sense, which he does using the Rudra Tandava, a dance of destruction. Pretty fucking cool. He also destroys our conventional perceptions of this world, peeling away the falsehoods that cloud our five senses and revealing the truths within. Much like... Weed. That's yeah, right. Yeah, I've had that weed experience. I call it the... Uh... Midlife crisis brownie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? It's a very reflective uh, experience. But you need that occasionally. And, you know, we've talked about this, but some of the people who say, oh, I had a really bad experience with weed, sometimes it is entering mm -hmm. that, uh, let's say, constructively destructive uh, mind space and and recoiling from it. Yeah. And obviously, you know, anybody who's going to take the moniker Destroyer, is it Destroyer of Universe? Destroyer of the Universe. Yeah, that's going to, you know, engender a strong reaction, but it, it it is a necessary part of life and every destructive act is a creative act. Yeah, you know, the idea that 
death and destruction are negative somehow and that life and birth and rebirth are positive. It's a very Western thought process, right? It's very linear in some ways. And there's this inherent fear of living that comes with the fear of death, right? But in Hinduism, what you see is an embrace of the cycle, right? Because, of course, reincarnation is a major concept in Hinduism. So when you die, you come back until you achieve moksha and then are released from the cycle, right? And once you do that, you don't get to go live on a cloud and play a harp or whatever, right? You melt back into the essence of the universe, the essence of everything, right? So I've had that brownie too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the more fun one. Yeah, it's full of DMT. But <laughs> but yeah, you know, like that's really I, I think that to understand how cannabis relates to human culture in a lot of ways, you have to understand it through this lens, right? Th through the lens of Hindu spirituality, because it's not so cut and dry, you know, as our Western myths are, as myths in monotheistic religions are. There's more open to interpretation. It's kind of more loosey-goosey. And, and I think that's, you know, all to the benefit from my perspective, not uh, if monotheism is your thing, we're not here to talk you out Yeah, of it. whatever. Do your thing. <laughs> Just leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know what? In a lot of ways also, the oneness, right, the backdrop of all Hindu belief and mythology can be equated to the one God that we look at in monotheistic religions, right? A lot of people are very quick to make this comparison to say, oh, Hinduism has many gods and Christianity only has one God. Well, you're not really comparing the right elements when you do that, right? Because those gods in Hinduism very often are there to illustrate moral stories, right? They're there to sort of play out the mythology of the religion that tells you you should do this, you shouldn't do that, this is how you should live or whatever, right? And in monotheism, usually those people aren't referred to as gods, but there is oneness in all things, Yes, if everything returns to the one, what does the one return to? Mm, the zero. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so according to Hindu belief, Shiva's destruction is not arbitrary, but constructive, right? As we're saying, we destroy in order to rebuild, improve, and enhance. And Shiva is therefore seen as the source of both good and evil and is regarded as one who combines many contradictory elements, right? As we're talking about. So, Here's a quick rundown of Shiva's roles and powers. Shiva is a complex god with many roles and powers. In his destroyer role, he often haunts cemeteries wearing a headdress of snakes and a necklace of skulls. He's often depicted with a third eye, a cobra necklace, a vibhuti, which is three lines across the forehead in white ash, which you'll see sadhus wearing, and a trident to symbolize the three functions of the three gods. He's an ascetic and is thus dressed more simply than many other Hindu gods, often in a simple animal skin. Can you picture this guy? I can definitely picture this look. It is a striking look. If I was uh, strolling through the uh, cemetery, as they say, and I, <laughs> I saw such an adorned figure, I definitely think I would stop in my tracks. Yeah, a lot of strong fashion choices going mm -hmm. on there. Certainly, uh, the cobra necklace is something that you'll very often see because it's the cobra's head is kind of off to the side and up and its hood is out. And he's kind of constantly wearing this cobra as a scarf almost. 
which is, you know, a pretty ballsy move in itself. But basically, he looks like a badass and he does it with relative simplicity, right? So when we're talking about like, oh, asceticism, you know, the sadhus that are devote their lives to Shiva, they're following in that example by wearing essentially nothing. Yeah, so when we say asceticism, uh, yeah. how, would you de- how would you define that? So asceticism is foregoing worldly pleasures for a life of spiritual devotion, right? So this appears in many different religions. If you've ever seen The Da Vinci Code or read the book, there's that guy who self-flagellates. That's a form of religious asceticism. The Shiites of Islam, uh, once a year on Muharram, they self-flagellate. So that's also a form of asceticism. Sadhus in Hinduism will let go of all their worldly possessions and just like, you know, live their lives in sort of like this spiritual meditative state. There's sadhus that claim to have not eaten for decades. There's sadhus that claim not to have drank water, right, for, for, for ages. There's all kinds of different ways to show it, but in a lot of ways, it's sacrifice, right? It's sacrificing your normal approach to life. There's also Sufi ascetics, right, in Islam. You know, the things that drugs do for a lot of people, like take you to another mental state, there's many ways to get there. You can get there by exhausting your body through rhythmic dancing, right? You can get there by starving yourself for weeks and weeks. There's many different approaches to spirituality, and these guys are the least conventional spiritualists. Yeah, it's really interesting when you talk about asceticism and sort of turning your back on the worldly possessions and everything. And in in our culture, our more modern Western culture, you know, we're in this world of materialism everywhere. But then I think of like the beatniks of the 50s who were exploring not just weed culture, which they really picked up from the jazz scene, Mm -hmm. uh, like we talked about in our jazz episode last season. But they really, from Kerouac on down, looked to these older spiritualities, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mm -hmm. to take their cues. And then you'd like picture a a beatnik's apartment in the 1950s and they're going to blow some tea and they got to pull the (laughs) shades down because it's super illegal. And you look on the, you know, picture that apartment. It's a bookshelf with like 10 books. They're sitting on the floor on a rug. They got like one record player playing some Coltrane records. And everything else is very spare. And they were very Mm. conscious of trying to react against that hyper plastic consumer treadmill and create a new kind of culture. And you can see that influence directly from what you're telling me about Hinduism. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's a very apt comparison. I think you see it a lot, whether or not cannabis is related, you see it in many cultures, right? But there are many cases where cannabis is in the mix. You know what I mean? I think it really leads to that kind of thought. It sparks that type of thinking. You know, it makes sense that on the one hand in Western culture, it motivates anti-establishment thought, right? But when we're looking at in ancient Hinduism, it motivates this hyper-spiritual thought. Those things are connected. You know, but we never got that one day where everybody could smoke weed. Yeah, it's true. That's true. And and we are we are getting to that day and we're going to, you know, experience it in part ourselves. So a little more about Shiva. Despite his destructiveness, Shiva can be helpful to humans and other gods. He acts as a divine judge who shows no mercy to the wicked. He gains spiritual strength from periods of meditation in the Himalayas. 
often aided by cannabis. And when he dances, he represents truth. And by dancing, he banishes ignorance and helps relieve the suffering of his followers. But as I said, he also uses his dance to destroy the universe. So, you know, take that for what it is. According to one myth, Shiva saved the gods and the world from destruction by swallowing the poison of Vasuki, a serpent the gods used to produce the water of life. Drinking that poison is what made Shiva's neck blue, and that's why he's often shown that way in art. Have you seen the blue Shiva? Yeah, that's when you were describing the figure mm-hmm. in the in the cemetery snake necklace at all. Yeah. Definitely blue. Yeah, yeah, mind. definitely. And he is blue, and, you know... This is the reason he's blue, right? Because he uh, he took one for the team, essentially. You know. Wow, he really goes back on the back and forth on this destroying slash creating. Yeah. Uh, vibe. Right. It's all kind of part of one thing. Look, like this is also a god that's accompanied by an army of demons. He wears skulls. He's got snakes. He destroys a lot of things. His dance is one of destruction. But in the same breath, people describe him as a crucial God who's like forgiving and loving and helpful. All these things are part of one thing. They're all kind of equal. There is no good and bad in the eyes of a God. So some versions of this myth say that the poison was so potent that it burned Shiva's throat. So his wife, Parvati, churned the leaves of bhang and gave it to Shiva, which calmed his pain and allowed him to achieve focus for dhyana or meditation. So do you know what bhang is? No. So bhang is a preparation of cannabis and other herbs that's often blended into yogurt or milk to create one of the world's oldest edibles, right? This has been around since before recorded history. And it's one of the earliest preparations of cannabis known to man. And it's consumed on Shivaratri and on other devotional Hindu holidays that involve cannabis. Oh, wow. Is this related to to Bang or... This is that, yeah. It, it's pronounced Pung, though. Oh, okay. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so you are familiar with it, uh, with this drink. Yeah, I've, I've seen, even I think in, in modern day India, there's uh, still shops that sell it, right? And I've, I've so I've, I've read about it. I've, I've never had it. I've never, I've never traveled to that part of the world, which is another big gap in my life experience that I will love to close someday. Yeah. Um, but so I'm familiar with it, but, but not uh, educated about it. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, as a cannabis person, you've probably come across this drink. It's spelled B-H-A-N-G. In the U.S., a lot of people pronounce it as bang. It's actually pronounced pung. So this is that stuff. It's also said that Shiva smoked chudas. Are you familiar with chudas? I'm I'm probably used to mispronouncing it as charas, but it's... That's, that's just as good. <laughs> yeah, and it is very good. It, this is some of the finest hashish ever to exist, and my only experience with it was uh, one time I was in Amsterdam with a gentleman called The Nose. Uh, <laughs> he's known over there as a major, major hash broker. He's a go-between between between these traditional producers in India and Morocco Ah. and the buyers at the coffee shops. And so he's the nose because his nose sets the price. Wow. Uh, And and so when he tells you something is a Charas? Charas. Yeah, Charas? that's perfect. You, you, you know, short of going to India yourself, you can believe it. And, and it's fantastic. Just so much flavor, spiciness, and, and a really, really beautiful high. I think it's got kind of more CBD in it than, than most hash. Yeah. 
and it's really, really tasty and beautiful stuff. But yeah. I but I don't know the history or the or the spiritual underpinning of it. Getting back to a god, Shiva is also closely tied with the origin of cannabis on Earth in Hindu mythology. The cannabis plant is believed to have been brought out from the ocean by the god Shiva when all the gods churned it in order to extract nectar from it. Sound familiar? Whoa, they're making like ocean hash. They're making ocean hash. According to another account, the nectar dropped on the earth from heaven and the cannabis plant sprang up from it. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. It does, right? So the the actual botanical origin of cannabis is believed to be the mountains of Central Asia, right? From the Altai Mountains all the way down to the Kush Mountains. So you can see why religions emerging from this region incorporate myths of the origin of cannabis. What do you know or what are your beliefs about the origin of cannabis, like where it actually came from? I I, I think Central Asia, you know, some of uh, it seems to be the more mountainous varieties that are older. Mm-hmm. I've heard Western China. I've definitely heard India. I don't think that that is a, a mystery that modern science has put a definitive stamp on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm very interested in where the Hindus believe it it, it originated. I mean, essentially, they believe that it came down from the heavens. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Right? A gift from the universe. I think maybe one of the best gifts from the universe. Yeah, definitely. So with or without Shiva involved, weed shows up a whole lot in Hindu mythology and text. It's most definitely a part of the Ayurveda, which is described in our kind of Babylon Western terms as a system of medicine. But really, it's a system of consumption, right? There isn't a distinction between food, drugs, and medicine so much as an understanding of what combinations of plants and plant derivatives are good for what system in your body, whether it's for maintenance or to cure an affliction, right? So, you know, in Western senses, we say, this is medicine, this is food, this is drugs. And you know what it gets us? An opioid crisis, a diabetes crisis, right? It's like, our understanding of what medicine is or what it should be is very linear, like so many other things we've been talking about, right? You get sick, you take a pill, and you're fine. You don't very often ask what's in there. You know, in the Ayurveda and in Hinduism in general, everything you consume, right, is part of your entire system of wellness. And that's what Ayurvedic food is all about. And then we see this again, you know, pulling into our Western thought. This is another uh, kind of consciousness that's flown along with cannabis. Yeah. Along with these spiritual ideas is this idea of uh, just eating well. And to get into the contrasts, as we see them, we have two stereotypes of what people eat when they're stoned. Right. I'm going to get some Doritos, man. Yeah, Funyuns. Yeah, yeah. Funyuns. Or who really started eating brown rice and, and quinoa and and mm-hmm. uh, macrobiotic diets and all of these things that sort of came up with the early hippie movement yeah. were all because they're following this route back yes. to the origin of cannabis. And we're much, much better off for it. Yeah, all the things you talked about mm-hmm. are byproducts of our attempt to divide everything up and not take a holistic view of things. And cannabis has really helped a lot of people reassess that. Yeah, I think cannabis has helped to re-blur these lines, which, by the way, are completely imaginary, right? And essentially what's driven us to draw these lines between food, drugs, and medicine is marketing. 
Yeah. And these these ideas, you know, we talk about the industrialization of our food. We talk about this idea, you let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. Mm-hmm. Ideas that seem like our culture are really our capitalism. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's very visual and physical evidence of the failing of capitalism when you look at the health crisis in America today, right? Just a couple more examples of where cannabis comes up in Hinduism. It also appears in the Atharva Veda, in which it is described as one of five sacred plants, right? Now, there's a lot of plants out there, right? And there's a Hindu text that boils it down to five sacred ones, and one of them is cannabis. And this is a quote from the Atharva Veda. To the five kingdoms of the plants, which Soma rules as Lord we speak, Dharpa, hemp, bung, barley, mighty power, may these deliver us from woe. You might be saying, that wasn't a list of five sacred things. Well, you know what? It's the best thing I can find. <laughs> because like I said, Hinduism is this trippy, like mystical vibey thing. Not everything is so mm. cut and dry as a list of things. And I, I love that deliver us from woe. Mm-hmm. And I think this also gets into this You know, when we have everything's a dichotomy to us and the one stereotype about weed is it's going to send you off to a magical realm where you have no cares and you're laughing at the piano and and shoving marshmallows in your face, which is (laughs) not a bad way to spend a Tuesday. Yeah. But the part that I think gets missed by people who don't understand the culture is the delivery from woe Mm -hmm. and 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 the delivery from trauma often. And now we are beginning in our scientific Western viewpoint to really understand, even Mm -hmm. in a a brain chemistry way, how this functions. Um, But to me and to a lot, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. that is a a very primary aspect of cannabis is the delivery from woe. Even if just for a moment to get out from under some of the hardships of of any life uh, and yours specifically. And so it really connects with me to hear it phrased that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I also wanted to ask, have you heard of Soma? I have heard of Soma as sort of this idea of, well, I think it's it's referenced in Huxley's book. Uh, is it not The Doors uh, of Perception? Brave New World. Brave New World. Yeah. And there it has a sort of context where it's being used to control people. But I, mm-hmm. I do know there's also a ancient version of this story, but I, I, I really don't know that much. Yeah. And you know what? You're in the same boat with just about everybody because it is mysterious, right? Soma is this psychedelic that appears all throughout Hindu mythology and no one really knows what it is, right? It's been speculated that it's one thing or another. Cannabis is mentioned alongside it sometimes. So it's perhaps not cannabis, but maybe it's psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, DMT. I I don't know what it is. No one really knows. It's been compared to mescaline. You know, of course, Aldous Huxley was a big fan of mescaline as he wrote about in the doors of perception and then soma appears in brave new world so you know the comparison could be made maybe it's mescaline maybe it's not but nobody really knows it's kind of an interesting thing that there is this mysterious psychedelic that exists in ancient texts and none of us know what it is yeah and it reminds me a bit of terence mckenna's stoned ape theory this mm-hmm. idea that 
the access to psychedelics could have been the catalyst point for a huge cognitive leap for for humanity. When our remote ancestors came under nutritional pressure, they began expanding their diet. But I want to concentrate here on one plant, and that is the psilocybin-containing mushrooms that grow in the dung of cattle. And I believe that, you know, in the next 10 minutes, I can at least make it seem plausible to you that this mushroom was the triggering factor that moved us from being an advanced hominid, an advanced animal, to being, in fact, a conscious, self-reflecting, caring, thinking, dreaming, striving human being. That the first cultures to come across these plants and other psychedelic preparations were the ones that, for better or worse, took us into our modern organization of society and had huge cognitive leaps that led to agriculture and maybe spirituality in and of itself. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite theories, evolutionary, biology-related or not, I think it's really, really interesting. I think that if you do psychedelics, it's really hard to deny uh, the potential truth in that. You know, when you're like, holy shit, yeah. Uh, You know, if I was a monkey, which I am, this would really open up my mind in ways that make me more quote unquote human, which it does. All right, so that said, we're gonna take a little break because when we come back, we're finally gonna get to our great moment, the annual festival of Mahashivaratri, and I've got a little treat for us so we can have our own little Shivaratri right here in the studio. Oh, I cannot wait. Oh, it's gonna be good. We'll be right back. Smoke weedia. All right, we are back. I am fascinated by this story. I am learning a ton. Can't wait to hear more about the reverse weed purge. Yeah. Where one day out of every year, everybody can smoke weed. That is definitely uh, a concept I want to get behind. I would I would love to have it be 365 days a year, but we're going to yeah. <laughs> we're going to work for our us, way there. For us it, every day is the reverse weed purge. In California mm-hmm. it, it is, but you know, tell me about this festival. All right. So, Shivaratri is celebrated in every lunar month of the Hindu calendar on the night of the new moon, which is Shiva's symbol. However, Maha Shivaratri is the most important and is only celebrated once a year on the 13th or 14th night of the Hindu month of Falgan. Of course, there are multiple explanations for why it's special. One says that it's the day that he got married to his wife. Another says it's the day that they consummated their marriage. Another says that it's when he ate the poison that turned him blue. Another says that that's the day that he danced to save the universe. 
Take your pick. If I'm taking my pick, I'll take dance to save the universe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a scholar, not an informed decision. Just, just going to take my pick. But I, it does bring up a question I have, which is, you know, we had in season one an episode about Jesus. Yeah. And, and presented quite a lot of evidence that the holy anointing oil that Jesus used to heal people in mm. the Bible, as described in the Old Testament, the recipe for this oil, and of course the healing miracles are in the New Testament, yep. uh, but there's been this huge effort to suppress anything having to do that in terms of the official documents and strains of Christianity as we experience them now. Yeah. Has something similar happened with Hinduism? If I talked to sort of mainstream modern Hindu mm-hmm. uh, religious figures and scholars, would they say, yes, cannabis is is central to all of, of what we've been talking about, or has there been an effort to suppress it? Right. So there are certainly groups that subscribe to the fallacious thinking of the last century that says that cannabis is harmful, there's a poison, that it's addictive and things like that. However, there are many, many people who continue to include cannabis in their spiritual concoctions, in the Ayurveda, in their Ayurvedic preparations, cannabis is still very much alive and well in Indian culture today, right? In fact, when the single convention on narcotics was introduced in 1961, it attempted to ban cannabis worldwide. But in India specifically, the Indian delegation requested an exception to say that we still want to be able to harvest parts of the cannabis plant, right? Some say that the indica strains that are indigenous to the region are more likely to have trichomes that occur on the leaves. So even if the buds are prohibited and you're not allowed to have the buds, you know, they're illegal according to this international treaty, you're still allowed to use the leaves in your natural preparations. If you're dealing with Kush strains, then those are more likely to actually have cannabis trichomes, THC nodules, THC glands on the leaves, right? So there definitely has continued to be an effort to defend or to protect the spiritual practices of Hinduism that revolve around cannabis. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, and it's still used every year at Holi, at things like Shivaratri, and by sadhus, right? All right, so the holiday is celebrated by Hindus all over the world, but in Nepal, it is a national holiday and draws over a million worshipers to Pashupatinath, which is a temple complex in Kathmandu, where I've actually been. It really is a beautiful place. It's an ancient temple complex. And in fact, it's a place that sits on a tributary to the holy Ganges, right? And so many people come to Pashupatinath to die because it's said that if you die at one of these sacred temples, you're released from the cycle of reincarnation. You experience moksha. You melt into the ether. Whoa. Right. That is quite a journey. Quite a journey. And 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 in terms beyond the cultural part, did, did you have a spiritual feeling there? Did you feel uh, yeah. something? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's really hard not to feel something when you're in this place where so many spiritual vibes have come and gone for centuries, right? And then also in a place where there are so many people who are also trying to reach that kind of spiritual understanding or level, right? Now, Nepal is not as 
visually, culturally rich as some other places of the region, like, for example, India, right? But it's home to a lot of very ancient, very sacred spiritual sites. It's, in fact, the birthplace of the Buddha, right? A lot of people don't realize Buddha was actually born in Nepal. And there's places, there's like a dome that's been sealed for hundreds of years and no one knows what's inside it. There is a temple that's entirely inhabited by monkeys. I mean, this is a place that's spiritually very attuned and you see it in the people. Now, this is a thing that I've never experienced before. It's a very poor country, right? And I was there with a bunch of white Americans with expensive camera gear. Now, you expect a certain level of hustliness on street level, right? Nepalis are the chillest, coolest people on earth. They don't give a fuck what you're doing. They're chilling. They're doing their thing. They're walking down the street. They're generally very happy. They have a great disposition, despite the fact that they've experienced all kinds of poverty. They've experienced earthquakes. All types of tragedies have happened there, right? And yet, they have this incredible resolve. And it is really a weedy place and a place that I hope to return to. And is this, this is where Kathmandu is in yes, Nepal? that's right. So one thing I do know from an article I wrote quite a while ago mm-hmm. is that, so in the, in the, in the 60s, and, and again, just getting to this connection of how weed moves ideas and consciousness, there was a thing called the Hippie Trail that, yeah. that ran through Europe, through India. Through Pakistan as well. And one of the sort of endpoints of this was in Kathmandu mm-hmm. and what came to be known as Freak Street. Yeah, that's right. I've been there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. So <laughs> yeah. This was a place where before cannabis in any form was prohibited in Nepal mm-hmm. and you had these hippies and Westerners and travelers and seekers. And and it was as described to me by somebody who was there in that era, actually buying lots of hash to smuggle back to the United States yeah. as this beautiful cultural connection. And, and as we talked before, how cannabis can be a, a, a tool for that, here was a very, very real life example of of people having, you know, commerce and cannabis being sort of the connecting point. Yeah. But really, really bringing people together and and describe just a beautiful vibe on on Freak Street as it yeah. came to be known to the to the Westerners. What what was your experience there? So basically, it's a place where there's a lot of mountain climbing shops. You can get gear, ropes, all that kind of stuff. We were shooting uh, in the mountains in the Annapurna, so we needed to get all kinds of equipment. And then there's your usual, like, trinkets and stuff like that. A lot of pipes, bowls, people selling mad honey, which is the psychedelic honey we were there to document. And really, there's quite a few tourists walking up and down, buying souvenirs, buying stuff. But it's not really a very hustly place. Nobody's bothering you. Nobody's clawing at your stuff or trying to get at your wallet. Everyone's kind of like, whatever, and just chilling. And it's certainly, like, the main drag. It's like a big crowded marketplace type neighborhood, but a very chill one compared to those found in other countries. And uh, just to close the close the chapter on Freak Street, like yeah. many, many things, uh, we can blame the changes there on uh, America and on Richard Nixon, who mm-hmm. uh, actually, as the story goes, paid the king of Nepal quite a sum of money to make cannabis illegal. Ah, no shit. Well, It worked for him 364 days of the year. (laughs) Because 
on Mahashivaratri, the ban on cannabis is lifted for the day. And essentially, everyone is allowed to eat cannabis, and people do. My good friends who own the restaurant Budmash, Arjun and Knuckle, their dad, Pawan, was telling me a story that when he was young, on Shivaratri day, his uncles or whatever would just give him a little piece of hash, put it in his mouth, and say, go run and play, have fun. Shiv Prasad, <laughs> right? Which means, like, you've taken the offering for Shiva. Now go out there and just get wild and play, right? So, yeah, you could be a kid, you could be an old lady. Not everyone is smoking out of a chillum. Very often the sadhus are. Young people are smoking joints or chillums. But a lot of people just eat a little bit of hash, which is generally decarboxylated just from the process of using your hands, like the warmth of your hands. You know, over time also hash will uh, decarboxylate on its own. Wow, that's so amazing. I mean, it's 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 interesting because we the closest thing, and it's not a, a parallel, but, but would be like 420 here yeah. is this day it's set aside. But, you know, what I think 420 misses is... I don't think a lot of people smoke weed on 420 that don't ever smoke yeah. uh, on other days. And I really find that to be like a fascinating premise. Mm -hmm. And 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 it's just very interesting to me how that aspect of it would play out. Yeah, because, you know, it's like Lent or something. It's a day when everyone does the same thing so that they all kind of have the same experience to cleanse themselves or to purge themselves or something like that, right? And yeah, I mean, it just makes so much sense to do that with a little bit of weed, I think, you know? <laughs> all right, so to give you a little bit more of an idea of this lifting of cannabis prohibition for the day, here's an oddly cold Daily Kos article entitled Shiva Ratri Festival Celebration Dash Worshipping God by Smoking or Eating Marijuana which explains this whole thing in very bureaucratic terms. Quote, Ganja supply. Local authorities and temple-slash-shrine management groups which see high pilgrimage tend to have a long-term plan and forecasting of supply requirements and for the festival. This includes setting aside land, providing seeds, and places that have a, quote, ban on marijuana, negotiating-slash-arranging-slash-promulgating, quote, lifting of ban, end quote, so that cultivation, harvest, and transport can take place, price control storage, and official sales agents to prevent price gouging and temporary spike in price, local law enforcement, safety and security management tend to want to ensure there is plentiful supply to prevent riots. They're not doing it for money. They're doing it so that people can worship. You know, and I think that's something we could really take away from it here in the United States. When money is the motivation you kind of fuck up the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like here, this is something that's that works, something that's worked for millennia, right? Where everybody consumes cannabis for a reason, for a spiritual reason. It's their w form of worship and nobody's there to capitalize on it. I mean, this reminds me of when we talk about the movements of the 60s and how they used to distribute acid freely. Because if you take acid and it's good and you have the apt experience, the concept of money just kind of disintegrates and you just want to share it for the sake of sharing it, right? And that's kind of where we're at. All right, so to get back to Shiva Ratri, here's an idea of kind of the rituals. What's the experience of doing this, right? So rituals begin at dawn on Mahashivaratri Day, during which devotees fast and worship 
And they continue through the all-night vigil, which is called Jargran, right? Devotees believe that they'll be absolved of their sins and increase their chances of moksha, right? Or to be released from the cycle of death and rebirth. And many of them are also just praying for things that people pray for. Success, happiness, a good job, a good marriage, etc., etc. Good weed. Good weed. Yeah, and uh, they bathe the Shiva Linga, right? Which is Shiva's phallic symbol with milk, pung, water, and honey. And they decorate them with flowers and garlands. Uh, and that's a very important sort of visual aspect of this. And people chant... They're praying for light over darkness. And Shiva is offered special food made from seasonal fruit root vegetables, coconuts during the ritual worship. And these are all like offerings sort of placed on the altar of Shiva, right? And people of all ages and walks of life fill the temple grounds. Tourists are there enjoying and curiously kind of surveying the scene. And there's colorful naked sadhus meditating, posing for photographs, you know, because this is a big kind of event that attracts a lot of people and sharing their cryptic knowledge with disciples and yeah, they, like I said, they really love speaking in kind of circular poetry, you know? It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's another uh, sort of beatnik vibe, you know? I yeah. think that's a weed vibe. Yeah. I think, you know, coming at it, you know, we talk a lot about wordplay and, and improvisation and, mm -hmm. and all of those things. And, and yeah, it's... Are you it's trying to justify your puns... <laughs> Through, uh, <laughs> through ancient Hindu spiritual practice. You know what? Any further attack on my weed punnery is religious intolerance. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I agree with that. And I actually will stand up for your right <laughs> to use weed puns as a spiritual sacrament, right? So in the morning, the fast is broken and the devotees eat the prasad or the offering which has been offered to Shiva, right? And so now... We're going to get into some cannabis preparations for Mahashivaratri. Now, Bean, you might notice that there is a pint glass of some off-white beverage right next to you. I have been noticing that the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I've been side-eyeing this glass since I sat down. That's right. So what you have there is bhang that I have made myself. And what went into that is yogurt, dates, almonds, cashew nuts, walnuts, right? All chopped up and blended together. There's some yogurt in there, some kefir, right? Some milk. And there's some bubble hash as well as a drop of CBD distillate because, you know, we're in the studio. Edibles can get a little wild. I thought I'd take the edge off a little bit. But this is infused pung. I used a recipe that I found online. And here's a basic description of what pung is. Uh, which is from the times of India. Large green leaves and flowering shoots of mainly the male plant, surprise, but the female too, crushed into pulp with requisite amounts of water. It is rarely smoked. Dark green in color, bhang can be laced with milk as tandai, which is one type of preparation, mixed with sweets or cooked with pakoras, right, which is fried snack. Bhang may also be made into lassi, which is made with coconut milk, yogurt, and tandai spices, right? So what we have here is 
bhang thandai, which is yogurt, milk, and nuts and dried fruit. Right? Ah, see that. First of all, that sounds delicious and amazing. It's yeah. gonna be my first time ever partaking of maybe the world's oldest edible. Yeah, so this might be the world's oldest edible. Of course, we have done an episode about majun, right? Uh, Gertrude Stein's recipe for the ancient Moroccan edible. That one is very, very ancient too, right? It's from North Africa. So if you look at it geographically, it's probably more likely that Bhang Tandai is a more ancient preparation of cannabis edible, but they're both very, very ancient. And interestingly, they involve a lot of the same ingredients, dried fruit, nuts, stuff like that, cannabis, hash. So yeah, that's what we got here. You ready? Oh my gosh. I am uh, I am touched and honored to uh, enjoy this with you. Yeah, likewise, my dude. Cheers and uh, happy Mahashivaratri to you. To you as well. Oh, that's delicious. Oh yeah, it came out pretty good, if I do say so myself. I'll say it's the best I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but it's delicious. It's got a nice tang with the yogurt, but you get mm-hmm. the spiciness. I'm gonna hold on. I feel like the I get the I get the faint weed vibe in there. Yeah, just but, a little bit. There's a little cardamom in there. There's a tiny mm-hmm. bit of ginger in there as well. So of course, in addition to the Bhang Tandai or the Bhang Lassi, people smoke charis, right? People smoke ganja. So ganja is the word, the Sanskrit word for nugs, for cannabis flowers, right? So everyone's getting high in every way you could possibly think of, and they're getting down, and it's a really good time, you know? So Mahashivaratri just happened on February 22nd. So if you're out there in the world, just Google image that or look for videos of it, and you'll kind of see what this event is like. But it's very mellow in a lot of ways. Many people are in this kind of spiritual state. They're there to worship. It's a day of reflection, right? People are fasting. They're putting themselves into altered states for no other reason than to commune with the higher power, right? And to sort of tap in. So while Kathmandu is a pretty mellow place, despite how crowded and chaotic it can appear, this is an extra mellow day. It's very crowded, and there's a lot of people but there's a lot of love and spirituality in the air. This is a wonderful night under the grace of Sadhguru. Uh, I consider it a blessing as well as my fortune to be here tonight. So that essentially brings us to the end of this story, but I'd like you to take notice of something about this episode. We haven't had any bad guys. Ah, we have a huge festival Mm -hmm. of people consuming cannabis in many forms, Mm -hmm. uh, doing it not just openly, but in a celebratory way. We have the government growing all this weed to give everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Almost every great moment in our stories has been uh, precipitated and in some ways forced into being by this conflict yeah, with that's authority. Right. And here we have the authorities at least one day a year leaning into a good weedy vibe. Yes, exactly. This has all been happening for millennia before there was any idea of cannabis prohibition. And even though colonialism in the Indian subcontinent co-opted the cultivation of cannabis and the wave of prohibition of the 20th century, 
threatened the legality of cannabis, as we were talking about, single convention of narcotics. India demanded an exception for cultural ritualistic use, and the use of cannabis for religious ceremonies has continued essentially unhindered. And in fact, we're going to end this with some positive current news. Lawmakers in Nepal are fighting to fully legalize cannabis in the country. And this is from the Associated Press. It came out on February 10th of this year, 2020, just a couple weeks before this year's Mahashivaratri. Quote, 46 members of the ruling Communist Party of Nepal filed the proposal in parliament to legalize the production and use of marijuana, party lawmaker Birod Katiwada said Monday. He said the Himalayan country's mountainous terrain is suitable for the crop and allowing farmers to grow it would greatly benefit those who are impoverished. He says, legalizing marijuana will help the poor farmers and since most of the Western world, which was reason for making it illegal in the first place, have already ended prohibition, Nepal should also lift the ban. Well, that is exactly what I was about to say, and I'm glad to hear it expressed straight out of Nepal. Yeah, by a lawmaker. Because not just everything about, yes, it's going to help the country and its medicine, but to say, yeah, now that the United States that imposed this unbelievably damaging prohibition on everyone in the world has legalized, Mm -hmm. that is creating the space. This is happening not just in Nepal, but in many, many countries that went through this same process with the UN treaty and everything. And I think that one of the beautiful things, you know, you and I have talked a lot on this show about some of the negative aspects of legalization. Yeah. And of course, also the positive aspects, looking at it in this state or this country where it's happened. But I really think one of the biggest things that happened with legalization was opening the door for the rest of the world Mm -hmm. to get out from under this boot that we put on them. Yeah. And that is so important. And of course, to see it happening in maybe the oldest cannabis culture on earth, Mm -hmm. it really makes me feel good about some of the damage we've been able to undo with this legalization, even as a mixed bag. Yep, exactly. Very well said. And that does it for this episode. One that's about an event that's been going on forever, one in which there were no bad guys, and one in which... We got to have a little treat and get a little extra lit in the studio. Oh, my God. It was a great moment and great moment in weed history. History. It's on the list. From start start to finish, I am going to finish my tasty beverage. And I I learned so much. Thank you so much. I know it must have been a lot of of strains to put together in this one. And uh, it was my pleasure. I loved it. My pleasure, man. I'm so glad you liked it. I really enjoyed. And thank you at home for listening, for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time on Great Moments in Weed History. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, David Bienenstock, a.k.a. Bean, and Abdullah Saeed. We're produced by Cody Hoffmachel with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and Carson McCain. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. We're recorded at Gold Digger Studio by Gabe Wilhelm. Special thanks to Haley Nelson, our researcher for this episode. Shout out to our patrons on Patreon. Thanks so much. 
If you want to follow us on social media, we're at GMIWH Podcast on all platforms. Check out our show notes for links to our sponsors. You can support us by supporting them. Thanks for listening. that's the show folks thanks so much for listening and if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on patreon you can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and that would really help us as we research write edit and publish a new episode every weedness day great moments in weed history is written produced and performed by me david beanenstock aka bean Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.